Billy West Live, Dr. Greg Granger joins us again talking uh, Middle Eastern politics, fascinating subject, uh, one that doesn't have a lot of really concrete answers, but a lot of gray area that leads to great discussion. And it's always great to have Dr. Greg Granger, political science teacher at Northwestern State University. Um, Dr. Granger, for years, um, people have read, studied about a potential, quote, two-state solution in the Middle East. Can you explain that option uh, and why, or, or maybe why not, that's actually a viable option to solve this years, thousand years long dispute? Sure thing, Billy. It's great to be here. And uh, as we said last week, it's a pretty complicated picture here. I often say, if you look up the word intractable in the, in the dictionary, you'll see this problem <laughs> pop up. You know, it's, it's hard to handle. Um, the two-state solution idea is that we can have, as we do now, an Israel state or a country uh, called Israel, and we can have another country with a government and borders and people and international recognition called Palestine. Now, um, it would be a geographically divided state. You know, we've got Hawaii out in the ocean, we've got Alaska way out there, so it's, it's not unprecedented to have a, a discontinuous uh, type of, of, of border situation. Um, the problem is that the two-state solution has gotten further and further away from our grasp. And part of that is because of the conflict between the two peoples, part of it is the conflict within the Palestinian people, the uh, civil war, if you want to put it that way, or the disagreements between the people who run the West Bank and the people who run Gaza are moving further and further apart from one another. And a lot of it is competitive. They, they both want to take power. The conflict of the last week, for example, a little piece of the explanation is that Hamas quite simply saw an opportunity, uh, partly because of uh, what they perceived as Israeli provocations, but also because uh, old man Abbas there in the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank is losing power. And so they saw a chance for them to fill the vacuum for themselves to do that. And so they took these these actions. And so let's look at the options. A two-state solution would be one where Israel recognized a state of Palestine, a state of Palestine with whatever government uh, recognizes a, a state of Israel and international recognition beyond that. Uh, what are the alternatives to that? Well, one alternative, I would say, unfortunately, the probably most likely alternative is more of the status quo. Uh, Palestine is not a state. It's um, it's just a territory, quite simply, and it's occupied largely by Israeli power, whether on the ground or in the area. Um, the other option, which again, many Israelis worry about this option, would be what we call a one-state solution, where we have an expanded Israel that uh, would bring in the Palestinian people as citizens. Now, in that case, we would talk about the addition of several million people, non-Israelis, non-Israeli Jews, excuse me, uh, into the situation. And so the 20% of Israel that's Arab right now would be, I, I don't know exactly, maybe 40% um, would be Arab. And that would, in many Israeli Jewish minds, would take away this concept of Israel as a Jewish state. It would damage Jewish nationalism and it would lead in a sense, for them not to have the power that they have. They would have to make extreme consequences in, in their perspective with Arab interests. And they don't want to do that either. 
and they don't want Arabs certainly to be a majority in their country. And so a one-state solution would be where the whole area is one country, but Israel rejects that, and quite frankly, certainly Hamas does, um, and, and other Palestinian actors do. Um, like I said, the second solution or the second scenario would be what we have right now and what we have had for many decades. And the third would be this two-state solution where you have two functioning um, countries. Uh, I really think, sadly, the status quo seems to be the most likely scenario where um, you know, Israel has outsized power. You want to talk about economic power, you want to talk about international power in terms of having American uh, support, you want to talk about military power. We keep forgetting Israel's got just about 100 nuclear weapons. Right. It's not going to use it on Palestine because it's you know, right across the border there, that'd be kind of dumb, but they have that capability. Uh, plus, they, of course, have a very sophisticated, high-tech military. Um, much of it paid for by the American taxpayer, but they have a very sophisticated military, more so than Iran, more so than Egypt, and certainly more so than Hamas, which has several thousands of these rockets that a couple of dozen might hit their target if they're lucky. Well, you and I are both uh, fans of Fareed Zakaria, and he mm -hmm. had a fascinating program recently that we both watched. <clears throat> where he was discussing the imbalance of power right. with respect to the Israeli military and, and not just that economic power mm -hmm. and uh, the, the nuclear warheads, but that there's such an imbalance of power um, within the region that, that it's difficult to assess what the Palestinians see as a path forward. Right. I mean, how, how do they solve this problem? And again, I mean, for a lot of our listeners, to, if you will, help me and help our listeners understand, there are a lot of uh, Islamic uh, holy sites uh, mm -hmm. within Israel. Right, and especially the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is considered the third holiest site in Islam um, after Mecca and Medina and Saudi Arabia. And, um, you know, many Israelis look back many, many, many centuries uh, where the Temple Mount was, and but now it's this mosque. And so, for example, in April of this year, and I have not seen any American interviewer ask an Israeli government official why they did this, but we know that uh, Israel sent armed forces, both some of these settlers taking their own armed action and the Israeli police into the third holiest site on Islam on the very first day of Ramadan, a month long religious holiday. Um, and so there's been no explanation of exactly why they did that. And that is seen as sort of the, the spark that led to this that situation. I mean, when, when you look at it, uh, you know, when President Trump recognized or put more recognition behind Jerusalem and said he was going to move the embassy, the embassy there mm -hmm. when he signed, which we'll talk about in a second, the Abraham Accords with the Arab countries, we did not see the Palestinians protest. We did not see Hamas send rockets in. We did not see any of what we see right now. So that just shows what symbolic and sig significance lies with this mosque and this, this square, this one area where they have, and a neighborhood where Palestinians are being evicted to make room for more settlements, uh, even if Netanyahu and other Israeli governments many years ago said they wouldn't do so. Quite frankly, they are. So they're, they're evicting people from their homes, uh, saying you don't have a right to be here, so move on out, we're moving in. Um, that sort of policy creates great 
anxiety on the part of many of the Palestinians and in their mind often justifies a violent res resistance. What they see is because of these territorial moves, Israel becoming increasingly like South Africa was, an apartheid government, a, a, one that uh, separates people and controls people uh, who are not their own citizens even. Um, we, we see Israel as an occupying power. And, you know, we were supposed to try to get these things settled and remove occupation long, long time ago. Many people point out that Ariel Sharon, the previous, uh, a previous um, prime minister of Israel, took Israeli forces out of Gaza, so a unilateral withdrawal. But they still control the airspace, the port space, the harbors, the fishing areas, the checkpoints where people need to go to work. Many Palestinians actually do work in Israel or from Gaza to the West Bank. And it can take an hour and a half to get two miles, you know, to, to get to work. And so there's daily frustrations that build this resistance. Um, but as always happens with this, quite frankly, innocent people on both sides suffer because of that. And within Israel, you mentioned it uh, before, but within Israel, it, it's, it's not 100% Jewish uh, population. There are many Christians that live in Israel right. and many Muslims that live in Israel. Talk Correct. about that dynamic and how it affects everything. Well, about, like about. I said, about 20% of Israeli citizens are of Arab descent. Um, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but a, a small percentage of them are, are Christian. Uh, they may be um, Orthodox Christians, Eastern Orthodox, or um, Anglican, some of them, um, and others are, are Muslim. And that's why they have, and, and, and the idea is that at least in what's known as East Jerusalem, would be pretty much their idea. We talked about the two-state solution before. Uh, the idea was that Jerusalem, in the Palestinians' mind, or at least East Jerusalem, needs to be the capital. Correct. Uh, because of the existence of this mosque. Which is where and, the, and, the, the and property the problem comes. And the right. neighborhoods and all that. Right. And so, um, in the previous American administration, the son-in-law of the president, Jared Kushner, and his partner, um, Greenblatt, I believe his name was, or something like that. They're both Orthodox Jewish officials, so you know many people felt they weren't exactly balanced in their views. But they came up with what they saw was real estate solutions. All this is a real estate problem. Transactional. Yeah, and a very transactional view. And quite frankly, it's far more emotional than that. And, um, and, and the, the, the resentments are very deep-seated. So that's why we're seeing, for example, within Israel itself, uh, some atrocities being created, uh, being committed within their own society of Arabs beating up Jews and Jews beating up Arabs. And sometimes they don't even know they're Arab or Jews. They just perceive them to be an attack. Some poor old, old guy walking down the street. We've seen that happen on, on both sides. And that has not really happened a whole lot before. Uh, in the previous conflicts, 2006, 2014, others between Israel and uh, the Palestinians have been cross-border have been between Israel and Hamas right at the border of the, of, Gaza, of the Gaza Strip. Now we're starting to see, and this is most worrying to the Israeli government, um, conflicts within Israel. Within which, which is the reason they cities. bombed the tunnels and the, the, the Hamas tunnels that we've heard so much about recently, mm -hmm. is that seems to be the targets, or at least how the Israelis right. are justifying sure. their, their own military action, which is to destroy the tunnels uh, into the Israeli territory, right? There, there, there's a, a you know blockade of above ground mm -hmm. territory, uh, and that is justified by saying we don't want weapons to flow. 
and we want to stop that. Well, it also stops the flow of medicine. It stops the flow of food. Stops the flow of consumer goods. But one thing it has done, it has stopped the people that have bombs on their chest going into malls and we blowing do, themselves we, we, up. We do not see. We, that we have to give credit so to the Israelis. I mean, that that has stopped. They that. they've built physical walls and they have gone after these tunnels. And you're right, we have not seen buses blowing up in Israel in a very long time, like we did in the 80s and 90s. Um, and the, what we saw the, the Intifada 16 years ago, the rise yeah. up of Palestinians within Israel, mm -hmm. and so. Um, you're right, we, 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 we see a diminution of that, but we still see the buildup of resentments on, on both sides. And, and Not an easy problem to solve. No, you, no. you mentioned Jared Kushner and the Trump administration mm -hmm. and their efforts to bring what they tried to describe as a, a peace accord of some type in the Middle East. They've commonly become known as the Abraham Accords. Um, explain to our listeners what exactly got accomplished and I have a criticism of that uh, agreement, but I, I want to hear from you. What, what do you think about the Abraham Accords? Uh, was it something that was good for the region? And mo more importantly, was it good for America? And where's it going? Okay, first of all, uh, let's make a quick uh, distinction. Uh, the Kushner plan uh, had much to do with the, uh, the focus on Israeli and Palestinian issues and attempted to divide up um, territory and such as that. So that was kind of a micro problem right there in Gaza and mm -hmm. West Bank and, and Israel. The Abraham Accords are more regional focused. And what, for, for a long time, really going back through partly the Clinton administration, the George W. Bush administration, the Obama administration, so it's bipartisan, we have seen uh, greater and greater, with the promotion of the United States, greater cooperation between, for example, Israeli intelligence like Mossad and Arab intelligence sharing information. We'll get to about what in just a second. Uh, we see some cooperation militarily. Mm -hmm. so, so we ask ourselves, uh, what do these countries have in common? And the answer is Iran. Okay, Iran is a uh, Persian dominator, plenty of Arabs living there, but it's mostly identified as a Persian country and a Shiite country. And these Arab countries, UAE and, and the other, Morocco and others are Sunni Islam. Um, it is a mistake, we hear it on the news a lot, uh, to call them peace agreements. There was no war between these countries. None of these countries have gone to war against Israel, ever. Uh, so it's not really a peace accord. It's, it's simply an agreement to share both economic and strategic resources. And so we see tourism now between these countries where we did not see before. We see flights yeah, taking Flights place. between Israel and Saudi um, Arabia, right? But on a more, what the United States is more focused on are the security cooperation. Uh, sharing of intelligence, sharing of strategy and tactics, all designed to contain Iran. So we saw, again, both Republican and um, Democratic administrations work on what's called the Gulf Cooperation Council. It's a, it's a, um, a, a set of Arab countries around the Persian Gulf that, that work together. And we thought we could maybe unite them in a sort of mini NATO, you might say, a Middle East NATO. Well, that never worked. So this was a different approach by the Trump administration, and it, it worked uh, in terms of being uh, of these agreements were signed, and real things are happening on the ground. Now, um, is to me, one criticism could be, well, this gives us the excuse to not negotiate with the Iranians. We think we can contain them with this sort of security agreement, and that certainly can be part of it, but this abject refusal to use the Swiss, who are our intermediaries, um, to communicate 
with the Iranians. That way we can find out exactly what their interests are and what their plans are. And we can find out if there are any points of commonality that we can reach, like Mr. Obama did with the nuclear thing. It was very limited and, and needed to be updated after some time. We know that. But it did do what he wanted it to do, and that is delay any progress on the nuclear weapons front. So the criticism were, was the sunset provisions. Of well, it, sure, like but that. I mean, it's just realistic. You know, you take what you can get. Like I said, these were 22 months of very high-tech, difficult uh, types of negotiations about centrifuges and about enrichment and about a lot of things like that. Our energy department, which at the time under Mr. Obama was led by a uh, Nobel Prize winner uh, energy person and they, uh, they they really were able to come to this agreement. Now Obama sold it by saying we hope this modifies Iranian behavior beyond you know, the missiles, the terrorism and all that. And so one criticism uh, is that it didn't do any of that. But it was focused on the nuclear picture. It did succeed in delaying the nuclear weapons program. And so that shows it, I think it had some value. Um, what exactly Mr. Biden is trying to do is, is, is not entirely known to us right now. It's partly to piece back together, like Humpty Dumpty, kind of piece back together the JCPOA, the so-called Iran mm -hmm. deal, but hopefully also to go beyond the strictly nuclear picture to the missiles, to the behavior, to regional issues. Um, I don't think the Abraham Accords will prevent us from doing that. I think it was... Um, Again, and partly uh, a way of dodging direct communication with the Iranians by simply saying we're going to build this multinational um, uh, solidarity that can balance and contain Iran. But the fact is, uh, it's only going to go so far. I think we, we do need direct negotiations with Iran. Now, what does that have to do with the Hamas and then Israel issue, for example? Well, one of the things that we've seen that has diminished the significance within Islam of the old Sunni-Shiite divide is in the old days, we would not have seen Iran supporting Hamas. They would have supported Hezbollah over mm -hmm. Lebanon because they're Shiite. They would not have supported Hamas because they're Sunni. Well, because of plain old geopolitical interests and right. Iran's ambitions there, they do now support The enemy, of my enemy is my friend. Exactly. And so they will put away the sectarian picture and just say, this is about containing Israel. This is about our conflict with Israel and our support for Hamas. Can we somehow negotiate with Iran, get them to feel secure enough so that they do not feel the need to promote a group like Hamas? That is a challenging question, but it's one that I think is worth pursuing. It's interesting to get your perspective on uh, Jared Kushner's efforts and the Trump administration's efforts because the dangerous neighbor is Iran. And it sounds like your, your commentary is, hey, that's a good thing. I mean, that, that at least we got those uh, well, area sure. like neighbors said, yeah, talking. There's some economic development involved in that, and, yeah. and that's good. And, and, and uh, it generally has the support of people. It does not have the support of the Palestinians because they were completely left out of the picture. And the fact is, many of these Arab countries, quite frankly, in my view, pretend to care about the Palestinians. Uh, but they use it as a, as a pawn. Um, in, in their great game. And the fact is, they're tired of the Palestinian question, and yet they won't do anything about it. They won't make the Palestinians citizens of their own countries. They won't 
find a solution to this. And so what the Trump administration, you know, it, it's been a long time debate. Do we settle the Middle East by settling Israel-Palestine first and then branching from there? Or do we settle the regional issue and hope that solves the Palestinian issue? Um, we've tried it both ways now, and the fact is we're still seeing this intractable conflict take place. Well, Dr. Granger, it's been a fascinating discussion. I'm not sure we solved any problems, but we, no. talk, we <laughs> talked about a bunch of them. And it's always fascinating to get your perspective and to talk about uh, maybe the most complex uh, geopolitical issues of, of our time and our, our millennium. Uh, so thank you so much for joining sure, us, thanks. Dr. Greg Rand. Ellie Westline.